It's a rare connective tissue disorder with a range of symptoms from joint hypermobility through to gut problems and organ prolapse. It was thought to affect 1 in 5,000 people, but the latest research suggests it could affect 1 in 500. I'm journalist Angela Walker and in this podcast I talk to inspirational people and discuss underreported issues. Today I'm in conversation with Sarah Hamilton from the Ellers Danlos Support UK. Thanks for joining me, Sarah. Um, first of all, what is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome? So Ehlers-Danlos Syndromes are a connective tissue disorder. There's, there's 14 different types, 13 we can genetically test for, but the most common type, the hypermobile type, we can't. And it's basically a fault with the collagen within the body. And our collagen is the mortar between the bricks kind of building block so when there's an issue with it those bricks are unstable and it can affect organs um you know collagen isn't everything within our body the eyes the organs the skin the joints so we have this in instability and instability throughout the whole of the body so there are so many symptoms i know um hernias prolapses heart problems um how bad can these symptoms get for some patients they can get really severe. The biggest issue is lack of management, which will then lead to symptoms becoming worse and worse and worse until it gets to a point where we do have people in the community that need to use wheelchairs. Um, if it's affecting the gut, then they need to have peg feeds and things. And that comes from not knowing what it is that they have, not having appropriate management and medical support to get on top of that. So it works on a bit of a spectrum, but we do see this kind of line of affecting people in very different ways but much more kind of towards the severe end of things is ending up in wheelchairs and affecting daily life very heavily. Um, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is because I've got joint hypermobility syndrome myself. Um, I didn't find out till I was in my 30s and it really started causing me problems after I had my daughter and I had really bad sciatica and I had uh, prolapses and I had hernias and um, what happened was all of these various ailments that I had were looked on as different conditions and it took a long time before anybody said, oh, you've got joint hypermobility syndrome, it's a collagen issue and um, nobody was really looking at it as, as a whole. And so I was looking in some support groups and that seemed to be a common complaint. Other people like me who had joint problems um, and various other ailments um, were saying, you know, I'm being sent to the physio i'm being sent to um, a physio to look at my joints i'm being i'm being sent to somebody else for my migraines and they weren't really looking at all of the complaints as as one whole condition is that something that you come across Yes, absolutely. And I think as well with the way that our medical system works, say you go to the GP with an ailment, you've got 10 minutes and you're allowed to speak about one thing. But the problem with EDS, like you mentioned, is that actually it's affecting lots of different things. So you end up going down all these different routes and you struggle to get someone that sits down and looks at all these puzzle pieces and puts them together to see the big picture. And it means that patients kind of go round and round in circles. And as you mentioned, often don't get diagnosed with anything until they're in their 30s or 40s, for instance, when it reaches a point where you kind of go, 
there's clearly something going on here. This is clearly all connected. And quite often it's the patient themselves that put everything together and go, this is what I think is going on. This is what I think I have. Um, but it is unfortunately very, very common. I think average diagnostic time is 11 years. It's definitely a lot higher for most people. Um, we know we've had people kind of 60s, 70s, 80s that have then gone on to be diagnosed but from childhood they've seen all these issues it's just never been put together it's so interesting it wasn't until I was signed off work with really bad sciatica and then I saw a private physio who said oh your pelvis is really out of alignment and it had been out of alignment for a few years by then since I'd given birth and I'd had you know um so a numb leg and I couldn't drive and um and I was in a lot of pain and uh yeah I saw a private physio so oh yeah well you've got joint hypermobility and I was like what so I hadn't <laughs> even been given that diagnosis before but when I was given the, that diagnosis it meant that I could make some lifestyle changes like um to Pilates I found really helpful um uh, and, and stuff like that and now I'm under the care of a rheumatologist but um what can we do then do you think to see people getting an earlier diagnosis and, and help sooner i think the biggest thing is awareness and education at the minute you go to the gp and quite often the gp will say oh i've, I've not come across that or i think it's super rare i don't think it's that and it's changing that narrative it's having the gp acknowledge and recognize oh i know what that is i know about hypermobility spectrum disorder i know about hypermobile eds and the rare types too but then also knowing what to do from there so a gp can diagnose could diagnose the hypermobile type so that would be the best scenario that all gps have an awareness and training in it that patient comes in they go yeah i know exactly what that is but also from there that they have the tools to know what to do with those patients because diagnosis is all very well but like you said there needs to be management of it. Do we, depending on, on the level of severity, do they need to have a referral to gastro? Making sure that physios are all aware of it as well, so they give appropriate management. Encouraging patients to self-manage as well with things like Pilates, which are excellent, swimming, walking, etc. So just giving those tools to the GPs and primary care physicians would be incredibly valuable and I think would make a huge difference, not just to diagnosis, but to quality of life for patients as well. And you mentioned earlier that there's like 14 different types. It is so confusing when you've got a condition and you're trying to go, right, how can I help myself? I'll do some research. You know, I'm a journalist. I'm used to doing research. And then you go, oh, my gosh, well, which one have I got? Have I got this? Have I got that? And you said that it's been like reclassified and they're renaming things and rejigging it. What like so? So what exactly are the experts, you know, saying now about the different types of Ehlers-Danlos? So I imagine it will go up. Um, even since 2017 classifications, we've had more types. Um, the idea, hopefully, is that they, they can locate the gene for the hypermobile types. That makes diagnostics a lot easier. But from the research that they're doing, it seems much more complex, the, the hypermobile type. I imagine as time goes on, that it will go up and up and up. I mean, with the genetic clinics, currently if you go through the genetics clinic they not only test for those um 13 types that they can test they run a panel for all connective tissue disorders so they're very aware that there is major crossovers and as you said as well when you're looking at these things online 
they all kind of cross over and it can be really intimidating and difficult to work out okay which type do i have because i'm ticking this box and that box um and there's not much clarification and especially with the rarer types there's there's not much known i mean we have some types where it's family specific they have their own type of eds so the knowledge that we have of that type is very very minimal and it's very difficult as well because there are some types where you kind of say where does it even differ uh, between these two types how would you d distinguish and as a charity that's where we're really helpful kind of coming in because our knowledge is slightly more in depth and ha we have a picture of those patients as well in terms of we can physically describe the differences which I think can be very helpful because when you're reading it on a page it can be very vague it can be very um, open-ended it's really difficult to know whereas we can kind of pull out those questions to really help people go oh actually it's worth going down a genetic route to look if there's something there or actually no it sounds a bit more hypermobile eds but chat to your doctor and bring up these points so it can be very difficult i imagine as time goes on the list will just get longer with the more research that we do um, and I know that as a, a charity, you've been petitioning the government to put more research, more money, to make some changes into the way that um, hypermobility syndromes are looked at and looked after. Tell us about this campaign. Yes, absolutely. So our campaign has been pushing government to invest in primary care and secondary care for awareness and education in hypermobile EDS and HSD and really pushing them to put something in place for these patients currently the, there is absolutely nothing um i work on the helpline day in day out i get people that call me and i have to explain to them that there's not much i can do to suggest where they need to go or what to do because nothing exists there was one clinic at uclh and they closed it uh during covid and hannah dr hannah kaskas has been working really hard to try and get that clinic back open but it kind of pushed with that campaign of us saying you know enough is enough that all these patients don't have appropriate care, they don't have appropriate pathway, and the government needs to put those resources into changing that. Education to those primary sources will make the biggest difference to the patients and enable them to get care. And currently at the minute, if you're not getting diagnosis, if you're not getting management, you're ending up in A&E, you're ending up having to have emergency treatment, you're ending up having to be in a much worse position, which if you really want to look at cost of things, which is what often it always comes down to, that is a, you know 10 times more expensive supplying that level of care than if from the get-go you had a GP diagnose and you had physio put in management and you had a referral to say gastro that's a lot cheaper than having to wait years and years and years until you get to a point where you need all this severe emergency mm. treatment so petitioning the government to say actually this is going to benefit not only the patients but in terms of the way that the system works as well it's going to benefit everyone and make a difference and how many um, how much support have you got for your petition um, so currently for England, we have uh, 23,000 uh, signatures. And then for the devolved nations, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, um, their, their levels of, of how you sign it off is much lower. Um, so we've got a couple of thousand in kind of each place. And especially for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, there is nothing. Um, Northern Ireland have one paediatric rheumatologist for the whole of the country. Um, Wales I don't think they have any and Scotland a similar situation so across the countries it's dire very very dire and especially in those smaller nations there's absolutely nothing for patients uh, to access there's not specialists 
Um, let me just read out the government response because they have responded to your petition and this is what they've said. There are no plans for a national service for diagnosis or treatment of HEDS and HSD. Our plans for musculoskeletal conditions will be outlined in the major conditions strategy. And then it talks about how Ellis Danlos uh, comprises a group of inherited conditions affecting connective tissue. Um, and it says there is no specific treatment for either condition, but it is possible to manage many of the symptoms with support and advice and that they want clinicians such as GPs and expert physios to be empowered to identify and diagnose um, HEDS and HSD. Uh, what do you think about the government reaction? Inadequate, I think is the best way to describe it, and disappointing as well. It kind of demonstrates that they've not grasped the condition itself and the effect that it has. And yes, it would be fantastic to empower GPs and expert physios to be able to put these things in place, but it's a multisystemic condition. It needs a multidisciplinary team. And although MSK would be good for a small section of it, what about all the other symptoms that we're looking at? What about bowel and bladder issues? What about prolapse? What about healing? It's such a bigger pitch than that. And it was trying to communicate that to them that it's not just an MSK situation. It's a condition that is unusual in the terms that it, it covers a lot of, of things. But their response just shows, again, a lack of understanding of the condition and how it affects people. For a lot of people, the, the joint side of things ends up being the lesser issue when they're unable to eat, when they're unable to go to the toilet, those become the things that take over their life. And again, that they're not getting help and support and management for. So yes, the, the, the response wasn't great and has kind of pushed us to push harder to say, again, we disagree and things need to change. Because it does encompass so many um, different symptoms. And I think that's one of the confusing things, isn't it? I mean, personally, I get migraines, dry eyes, prolapses, hernias, um, very crunchy, painful joints. And, you know, and I'm affected very mildly compared to some people who get daily dislocations, digestive problems, bowel problems. Maybe we need to classify them Maybe they need to be classified more specifically in, in terms of the conditions. Do you think, why, or why is there such an overlap? I know it's to do with like the collagen, but it seems to encompass so many, um, different symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. And it is a really difficult one, um, in terms of kind of everywhere it affects. And I think the biggest issue is because it's a collagen, uh, problem and that collagen's in everything, there's kind of not part of the body that goes untouched by it and I suppose it's very unusual in that you know most conditions that we see will affect a certain thing so for instance if you've got arthritis that's specific to joints and causes pain if you have um Crohn's or colitis it's, it can be specific to the the bowel here we're looking at a condition that's extremely complex and that it just seems to affect everything and why does it mm. do that and how does it do that and why is it different even within the same family we can look at a, I say a mother and a daughter and their symptoms are completely different so we understand that it makes it extremely complex in trying to work out what it is that's going on and the hope is with time and especially with things like being able to find a genetic test for that type, it just makes it easier to kind of pinpoint what specifically is going on with that condition, what is causing it, 
where does the issue come from and are there even kind of subgroups to that as well like you said it kind of works on a spectrum it, it's we've got different levels of severity is it that there are more severe types of the hypermobility type or is it just the, the way it affects people but I do think it is an unusual condition in that sense of it just seems to affect everything so meantime while the government's dragging its feet or while the government's saying no it doesn't have any plans to improve the situation what does that mean for sufferers it means there's nothing currently whilst those feet are being dragged it means that everyone else has come to a halt and that there's nothing in place for them um we've been working trying to do awareness and training with specialists so next wednesday for instance we've got a um, medical professional training session with dr jane simmons where she's teaching about eds to medical professionals but what you're relying on there is them seeking out that training whereas if you get the government involved to make it mandatory to make it compulsory you're going to reach huge portions of people that need that care and attention um, it, it needs to change i mean currently you can go to local physio for instance and they just don't understand about how the exercises may need to be different how they may need to be more gentle because they're not like everyone else it could be that you you're telling them to do an exercise with their shoulder and it's dislocating it it has to be specific and there has to be education into how the condition affects people and at the minute most people end up self-managing or trying to put self-management in place because there's just nothing else and we we can give as many resources as possible we can refer to those uh clinicians who are willing to help who are pushing as well to get help in place but again from their point of view they're they're often one person in a huge area they're they're at capacity and struggling to help as many patients as possible and not knowing what to do or where to send them either. Um, you talked about self-management. What can people who've got a hypermobility disorder do to help themselves? Uh, things such as Pilates, gentle Pilates, um, can be really helpful. We've got great resources on our website where we've had free Pilates sessions that can be done from in bed if you're wheelchair-bound, um, if you need to take it really slowly and gentle walking as well and what's really important is pacing so it may be that you could walk half a mile but at the end of that half a mile you're in considerable pain so the idea with pacing is that you scale that back so actually I'm just going to walk for a minute at the end of that minute I'm not going to have pain and I'm going to build that up very very slowly so eventually do two minutes then three minutes and the idea is that eventually you'll be able to do half a mile but you won't end it in pain and you build it up incredibly gently there is this kind of misconception because it says all oh, exercise is really helpful and that's sometimes taken as oh get down the gym and get on a treadmill and we have to say actually no that's not the best thing for you that's going to be really hard on your joints going to cause a lot of problems mm -hmm. um it needs to be super super gentle it needs to be very kind to your joints hydrotherapy is really good i mean that's just the joint side of things in terms of people with doing self-management for gastro they can chat to their doctor about deficiencies about intolerances is there certain things setting off your gut and kind of investigating what it is and where the problems lie so sometimes kind of taking that you know taking charge of it and saying to the doctor okay i'm having these gut issues i've i've looked at these papers i think maybe these things might help can we just do them can you support me in doing them um self-advocacy is the biggest thing being able to speak up for yourself and to go in and say actually i'm struggling and i need help 
is one of the biggest mm. things of self-management is to kind of say to the doctor you have to help you have to step in here and give me tools as well because there's only so much you can do as a patient at home where you need to say to them hello can you support me in this self-advocacy so important isn't it because there was a point where I went to the GP and I was like look I've got sciatica I've got two hernias this isn't normal in a woman of my age something is going on I need to I need to get this properly investigated so but it can be really hard to self-advocate and also you talked about pacing it's really hard for people to go I'm having a really good day uh, but I'm yeah. going to rein it in because if someone's having a really good day then they want to get all the stuff done <laughs> absolutely it's yes pacing on paper brilliant doing it in real life is really difficult and we do say to people as well give yourself some leniency if it means that you know it's a friday night and you really want to go and see your friends you haven't seen them in ages you know that you're going to be wiped out for the weekend you know it's going to take it out of you but you know what actually for your mental health it's worth doing you know life does get in the way we can't be Mm. perfect you know as someone who tells everything the ideal perfect thing of how you should manage it as having heads myself I know I'm guilty of not (laughs) not doing those things and like you said Mm. you have a good day and you rush around and you fly around the house and it is difficult to be strict with yourself we do say to people please be kind to yourself as well you are only human life gets Mm. in the way we are busy people when you're trying to keep on top of things work family social life all these things come into account and if you are having a good day you kind of have this flurry of oh i need to get everything done and Mm. you know although not ideal it's okay we understand that that happens it's about saying do you know what i've got my kids sports day tomorrow and i want to be really well for that so today i'm going to take it easy getting that balance isn't it but let's talk about work because you know it's one of these hidden illnesses isn't it really people can't tell if you've got sciatica if you've got really painful joints if you're feeling exhausted so what can people do to manage their condition in the workplace reasonable adjustments and access to work the kind of top things that we suggest and as you said it's a really difficult one it's an invisible condition you often look very well um and you look perfectly fine so kind of explaining to people that that that's not the case can be difficult encouraging work to do an ot assessment so that they can have a look at what they can put in place but simple things such as, you know, if you have your chair changed, you, if you have a sitting standing desk, if you're able to work from home, you know, and all these things, staying in work. Most people want to stay in work. They don't want to be in a position where they're not. And they're able to do that if the right things are put in place. If their working hours can be changed, for instance, you know, if they struggle to get up in the morning, can we start later in the day and work a little bit later? And to have those conversations with work to say, it's not an unwillingness to work, absolutely you want to work, but I do need support in having these things in place. Government schemes such as access to work are fantastic as well. Um, They just put in place what you need. Do you need a wrist rest? Do you need um, a programme so that you're not typing if your fingers are dislocating? Do you need an ergonomic chair? Do you need a heat pad? There's so many things that they can put in place to make your life a lot better. From a workplace point of view as well, you know, quite often the government's able to fund that as well. So especially depending on the size of the company, it's not even them funding that equipment is government funded there's no reason not to put it in place especially when it makes that's really good to know isn't it because i think sometimes people they don't want to tell their employer because it almost feels like it's a sign of weakness and they feel that if they um 
if they've got, you know, a smaller employer, they don't want to put them to the expense or whatever. So it's good to know that there's that government funding there. And just finally, um, I know that you said you're not leaving it there when it comes to campaigning the government for um, more funding and more help for um, people with Ehlers-Danlos. Um, where are you taking this campaign next? What's like the next step? The next step is hopefully to have a discussion, have a room and to get MPs involved. So we have had some MPs come forward and say, actually, I've got people within my uh, constituency who are really struggling and I, I want to support you in this. So ideally, we reach that 100,000 signatures mm -hmm. so that it gets discussed in Parliament. We're at 23 and a half now. We're really hoping to have a really big push. But from that, we've made great connections of MPs that once that campaign ends, once we hand it in, you know, go and take that shoebox and hand it over. Um, we also have a room where we're going to have MPs coming in and out during the day, um, but also working closely with those MPs that have come forward that that campaign has opened the door to so that we've still got our foot in the door. We're still pushing um, and moving it forward. It's what it's done really well is highlight the issue and highlight that that is a problem and that problem is being acknowledged by people. So I think going forward is that we're continuing to push, getting more people on board that have influence to help things um, and also working with the medics as well to say to them, you know, what can we do to help if you want to get involved in this? How can we um, help with awareness and training and education so that you're able to best support patients as well? So just pushing everything in the right direction to hopefully make things better for patients. The government did talk about um, hypermobile syndromes being outlined in the major condition strategy. Do you feel like the condition is being overlooked? Yes, and I think trivialised slightly in the sense of that it's it's kind of, yeah, we, we acknowledge it, but there's not much that can be done. There's no cure, bit of physio and it will be okay. It just seems to be lumped in and not acknowledged as a condition on its own that that needs to be looked at they did initially as well with their reply discuss the rare disease framework we immediately come back and say it's not a rare disease so it doesn't come under that which is that now they've come back and said about the major condition strategy and about the msk services and we've just said it it's just not enough there needs to be more and there needs to be an investment in this especially with the amount of people it affects you know it isn't rare We've got huge proportions of people who are affected by this. Um, the difference it will make to people would be huge if that investment was put in. Sarah, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been really interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Angela. Today, I've been in conversation with Sarah Hamilton from Ella's Danlos Support UK. I hope you've enjoyed our chat. Please do share, review and rate us because that means due to the algorithms, more people will get to enjoy this show. Thank you so much. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can contact me through my website, AngelaWalkerReports.com. Mm -hmm.